How many of you would say you've ever heard the name Corey Ten Boom? Raise your name if you ever heard it. Yeah, good. Lots of you, lots of you. Well, uh, throughout the world, what's fascinating is, uh, if you don't know her story, uh, she is a Holocaust survivor, and what she's known for uh, is that she was able to love some of those people that inflicted so much pain and suffering on her, and uh, some of her work was recorded in some books. One of those books was titled The Hiding Place. And in that book, she recounts an interaction she had with one of her former captors. Uh, Corey was in a concentration camp called Ravensbrück, and as you can imagine, she endured their tremendous, tremendous suffering. She was in captivity, and both her father and her sisters both died. She spent many lonely nights wondering what's going to become of me, what actually became of them. But by God's grace, eventually she was released from Ravensbrück, or Ravensbrück, and at the end of the war, she went on to tell her story. About two years after the war is over, Corey travels back to Munich, Germany to speak in a local church. And as she spoke, a man approached her with his hand extended toward her. And he told her, he said, I was one of the guards at Ravensbrück, and since that time, I've become a Christian. And he said, I've received God's forgiveness. I'm sure of that. He said, but I'm wondering if you too would forgive me. And here's where theology meets real life. She knows that she should forgive, theologically, biblically, intellectually, but will she? Can she? What she finds is that in of herself, she cannot. And so listen to the words she writes down in her book, The Hiding Place. She said, his hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. Listen to this. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened, she writes, She said, from my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness anymore than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself required to do so. Corey later would write these words, You never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn through this morning to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series titled, Love Is. And the thesis of our series so far has been is that love can, in fact, change the world. In contrast, uh, that idea the last couple of weeks with the culture war Christianity, which positions itself that Love is the unfortunate choice of those who are not courageous enough to fight. And so in week one, we set the baseline for what love is by looking verse by verse at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then week two, uh, last week, we contrasted Christian culture's anger at sinners in contrast to Jesus' love for sinners displayed with the woman at the well. And so this week, I want us to dive into the uncommon love of Christ. What's so uncommon about loving people the way that Jesus loved? What's so uncommon about his love that literally changed the world and still continues to do so? And so for us to 
love people back that love us, that, that's common. But to love people who either will not or cannot repay our love, that's what is incredibly uncommon about the love of Jesus Christ. Anybody can love those who love them in return. And so what Jesus is leaning into is that very idea. Are you going to love like the world and only love those who love you? Are you willing to love people who either will not or cannot love you in return? All right, so Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look this morning at verses 43 down through verse 48. Jesus is teaching here his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mountain. He says this, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, basically Jesus is taking the wisdom of the world and he's turning it upside down. He's saying, hey, I, I know what the world teaches. I know how the world works, but, but this is kingdom economics, and, and some of what's conventional wisdom out here in the world is exactly the opposite of the wisdom of God. And so what he's saying here is, hey, stop taking your cues from the godless culture when it comes to who you love and how you love. He says, there's a better way, the way that I have loved you. And so he begins to describe this. So I want you to see three things in this passage about the uncommon love of Christ that separates us as followers of Jesus from the world, all right? So number one, we should love radically. Love radically. I spent a significant time around teenagers, or as I like to call them, aliens. I've got some living in my house. I share that mostly as a prayer request. And sometimes, if you've ever been around teenagers, you've got kids or grandkids, sometimes they use words that, that you don't always use when you're older and getting a little gray, right? Uh, I, I hear words like slay. And fire. By the way, both those mean really good. If you don't know what that, that means, all right? Uh, sometimes I hear the word basic. You ever hear that? People are basic. They're basic. Their clothes are basic. That's, you know, that, whatever is basic. Personalities are basic. And listen, you know what else is basic? According to Jesus, only loving people who love you in return. That's the most simplistic way that, that the world works. That type of love, it's easy it doesn't require any self-sacrifice. It doesn't require any supernatural work inside of me because that's how the world operates. But loving our enemies, that's a whole different level. That is radical in contrast to the way that the world loves its enemies. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus is taking the conventional wisdom and, and he tells us early in uh, chapter 5 here, beginning this section of verse 40, 43 and 44, he said, hey, You've heard it taught. And the, when he says that, what we know is this. That was the wisdom that was being produced by the teachers of that godless culture. And what they were teaching is you should love your neighbor, but you should hate your enemies. And Jesus said, no, no, no. The love that I have is so much more radical than that. Go back to verse 43 and 44 again. What's he say? You've heard it said. Here it is. You should love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. That was the wisdom of the world and their culture. And so Jesus, as he does this whole sermon, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, says, I'm going to turn that on its head. 
and in the kingdom economy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so apparently, again, there, was, there were people going around teaching. This is how love works. Your neighbor, those in your circle of influence, those who can repay your love, those who agree with you, look like you, vote like you, act like you, worship like you, you should love those people. But your enemies, you should keep them at a distance at best, and you should hate them at worst. That, that's how love should work in the wisdom of culture, and Jesus flips that upside down. And can we just be honest? That is what makes sense in human wisdom, right? It makes no sense to love someone that hates you. It makes no sense to pray for someone that persecutes you. It makes no sense when someone punches you on the cheek to turn the other cheek. Now, by the way, in kingdom math, on the third time, you can hit him back. Amen? It makes no sense when someone steals your cloak, your outer garment, to give them your tunic, your inner garment as well. But in the kingdom of Jesus, he said, hey, what's incredible about the kingdom is that we love people with an uncommon love that literally changes the world. And so human wisdom says if people oppose you, oppose them right back. If people love you, then, then those are the people you love back. Let's just get honest. If people make snarky, rude, abrasive comments on social media, you just comment right back, even meaner. Amen? It seems logical. It seems sensible. But here's what he's saying. It's not Christ-like. That may be the way the culture and the godless world operates, but it's not the way those who've been transformed and experienced by the love of Jesus Christ. Now, here's how serious he is about this. Later on in the book of 1 John, uh, according to 1 John, if you're unwilling to love people, even those who won't love you, those who can't love you, then what he says in 1 John, it's a warning sign that in fact, you don't belong to Jesus Christ. You know things about him, you participate in activities uh, uh, in his name, but you don't actually belong to Jesus Christ if you cannot love other people. That's how serious Love is as an identifier of Jesus Christ. And so, what does loving my neighbor actually look like? And then what happens if my neighbor is actually my enemy? Do you hear that? I just hit puberty. Sorry about that. I was channeling a little inner, inner Peter Brady. I was going to let it go and keep going, but then my kids are like, it's hard to love you guys sometimes. I just want to say that. Christ in me. All right? Now, first off, what he says is he defines the scope of our love in verse 43. And he says, hey, you're, you're called to, to love your neighbor. Now, who's our neighbor? Here's what we know about Scripture. When the Bible talks about our neighbor, it's anyone in our circle of influence who has a need that we can meet. So that does include your literal, actual neighbors. But guess what? It's anybody in your circle of influence that, that may have a need. And so the neighbor is not just the person who looks like you, worships like you, believes like you do, votes like you do. It's not only the people who live on your street, although it does include them. What it says is, hey, anybody in your circle of influence, that's your neighbor. Everybody in this room, that's your neighbor. Like, look around the room this morning. you got lots of neighbors, right? Some of them are a little weird. I get that, right? But everybody in your circle of influence, he's saying, that is the scope of your love. And so he first off defines the scope of our love in verse 43, but then he moves into the depth of uncommon love in verse 44 when he says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Now here's the reality. No one in the room this morning would raise their hand and say, I, uh, ate, I hate other people. Nobody says I would eat other people as well. I think I was drinking this morning before church. Amen? In honor of Mother's Day. But the question is not, do I hate people when I eat them? The question is, am I willing to actively love them? What happens in Christianity is we kind of have this mode that the gear shift is in neutral. Like I'm not out there actively pursuing hating anyone. That's not the question. The question is, are you driving and running towards people that need love? And so what we do as Christians say, well, I would, I would never hate anyone. That's terrible. I'll just put the car in neutral. And what he's saying is, no, 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 that's not the question. The question is, are you willing to love everyone? The command here in chapter 5 is not to not hate anyone. The command is to love everyone in your circle of influence, even the people who will not love you back, your enemies. And so here's the question we all got to wrestle with. Me, me too. Are we actively loving people that if we're honest, we don't like? Are we actively loving people that we do not like? Do the people who disagree with you politically still know that you love them deeply? Do the people who you disagree with on lifestyle choices give testimony that even though you disagreed clearly and unashamedly, you still loved them deeply? Or do we just love like the world loves? We love people that are like us, right? That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 5. He says, hey, if that's how you love and that's the limits of your love, don't pat yourself on the back. Because as a matter of fact, we're going to find out at the end of this, you're not in good company if that's how you love people. And so where we are in the culture war is people who disagree with our values and our politics are the enemy to be destroyed, not the mission field to be loved, which is the complete opposite of what the Bible teaches, by the way. Now, maybe you're here and you say, I, I don't know, I think, they're, I think they're the ones messing up the culture and the world and our country and all those kind of things, and so, so we just can't love those people. we got to angrily oppose them. And, and matter of fact, I think you're wrong. I think those, in fact, people are the enemies of God. So let's just say that's true, which, by the way, it's not. But let's just say that it was, that they were, in fact, our enemies. That the people who do not hold to our values are the enemies. Guess what? You know what verse 44 says? There's still not a loophole. Because guess what he said in verse 44? Those people that you think you're enemies, you're called to love them too as well. So here's what he's teaching in chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. There's not a person on the planet in your circle of influence that you can ever justify not being loving towards. Now, it's not saying condone sin. He's not saying you can, can't disagree in love. He's not saying you compromise your values to love someone else, those things. What he's saying is, say, there's never a place. There's never a person. There's never a situation. There's never an ideology that a person holds where you can say with integrity, God approves me not loving you. Well, they're my enemy. Guess what? Jesus is saying, love them too. Love them too. That's what's uncommon about the love of Christ. Now those in that day and those today who don't think you need to go out of your way to love people who aren't like you, listen, that, that's a problem of prejudice. That there's, there's prejudice in who I'm willing to love. And so I'm called to love people who don't agree with me in my religious convictions. I'm called to love people who are in different socioeconomic levels. 
People who speak different languages and come from different countries, peoples of different races. Because in Scripture, you know what we see of Jesus? We see modeling that over and over. We see the followers of Jesus Christ, the truly followers of Christ, going outside the boundaries of what culture said. These are the people you should love over and over. When people are transformed by the love of Christ. We saw Jesus last week went to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Samaritans were hated. She was immoral. She was a woman, so she was a second-class citizen. And there's Jesus pursuing her in love. We see the good Samaritan helping the Jew in Luke chapter 10. They were supposed to hate each other. We see in the Old Testament the farmers leaving a portion of their crops for foreigners that were coming through so that they didn't have to go hungry. And so it's just not enough to settle into this idea of, well, listen, I'm a Christian. I don't hate anyone. That's not the standard he's setting here. He's saying the standard is, are you willing to love everyone? That is the uncommon love of Christ. To love those who seem unlovable and certainly those who are most likely not to be able to love us in return in tangible ways. Now, I want everybody to look up here. Let me tell you why this is so important. It's because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. That you were completely unlovable. But the Bible says in that while we were still sinners, while we were actively waging war against Jesus, Christ died for us. What is that? That's a picture of biblical love, a willingness to self-sacrifice on behalf of someone else. And so listen, when you love people who won't love you in return, when you love people who can't tangibly love you in return, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you in ransom, uh, paying the ransom for your salvation. As a matter of fact, based on that theological truth, we, we could argue that there may not be a situation in life where you're more like Jesus than when you're loving people who won't or can't love you in return. Now, this is unpopular teaching in American Christianity. But the Bible clearly teaches that before you belonged to Jesus, you were his enemy. Uh, Despite what the t-shirt says, Jesus was never anybody's homeboy. All right? Uh, Listen, the Bible gives two options. He's either your enemy or your Lord. That's it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says this. This includes you who were once far away from God. Listen, you were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his, what? Enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Now, I know it's not seeker sensitive to talk like that, but listen, it sure is biblical. And so there is no mindset of, of, you know, I, I, I'm not a Christian, but I mean, listen, I'm cool with, with Jesus, right? And so what we're saying is I'm not actively following him, but I mean, good night, I'm not out, you know, playing with Ouija boards and cutting the heads off of chickens in the backyard, amen? No, no, Jesus himself said, hey, you either for me or against me. That, that's it. There's no middle ground. Now, so, so, so that's the bad news of the gospel, right? But here's the good news. Of the uncommon love of Jesus, despite us being his enemy, listen to how he loved us. Ephesians 2 speaks to how Jesus treats his enemies. Verse 11 through 13, therefore, remember that at one time 
you Gentiles, so all non-Jewish. So everybody in here fits under the umbrella most likely, right? Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Jesus, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Let me give you a paraphrase. You were on the outside. You are outsiders spiritually, okay? And then it describes your condition having no hope. And without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so what's that verse teaching? What does God do because of his uncommon love with his greatest enemies? He doesn't destroy them. He re- redeems them. He ransoms them. He rescues them at an incredible high cost to himself. That is the uncommon love of Christ. Did we deserve it? No. The Bible says what we deserved was his wrath, and what he offered us was ransom. And so that's the uncommon love of Christ, that we were strangers, and he adopted us. We were enemies, and he calls us friends. Though we sinned against him, he pursued us in love. And guess what? If you want to model that character, that's the exact same thing you and I should be doing to the people who will not love us, our enemies. Jesus has not called us to be culture warriors. He's called us to start a counter-cultural movement. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, then there's a good chance that at some point in time, you've heard the phrase, Christians should be different from the world. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase. Anybody ever teach that, say that? Now, let's just be honest, all right? Most of the time, it focuses on the externals, right? Right? We don't drink, smoke, or chew, and we don't date the girls who do. Amen? Which, that's just good wisdom, all right? Write that down. And it's all external. And what happens is this. When all those things that were different are external, listen, you don't end up being different. You just end up being weird. Amen? And the only person who thinks that's attractive is your mom, all right? God bless them. But listen to this. If you want to be different because Christ has transformed you, don't be known just for what you're against. Be known for who you are for. You know who God's for? According to the example of Jesus Christ, people who are far from him. People who are far from him. And so what's different about us is not that I don't play cards or I don't, you know, I don't wear fill in the blank, whatever. I don't go here, fill in the blank. I don't fill in the blank. What's different about us What's countercultural about us is not what we're against. What's different about us is that we love our enemies instead of trying to destroy them. That's what's different about Christianity. That's what's uncommon about the love of Christ. That's the secret sauce, what makes Christianity irresistible. And the starting point of what that looks like, you say, well, gosh, that's hard to do. What, what does that look like? Well, he just gives one example. It's not exhaustive. One example. Go back and look at these verses again. So verse 43 says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and, here it is, here's a little clue, and what? Pray for those who persecute you. And so that's not an exhaustive list, but guess what? It's a good one. Right from the mouth of Jesus One of the signs of spiritual maturity is am I willing to intercede on behalf of my 
enemies, those who have wronged me, those who have persecuted me, those who have treated me unfairly. And listen, in doing so, you're just like Jesus. You know why? Because you've wronged him in your sin. But the Bible says he is our great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, still to this day making intercession for the saints. And so you say, who in the world would pray for someone who's persecuted and used them? Jesus would. That's who. And if you and I are going to represent him well in an uncommon way and be different and not just weird, guess what? We're going to do the same thing. You say, that doesn't make sense to me. Listen, the wisdom of the world, it doesn't. In kingdom economics, that's exactly the way it looks. Jesus' prayer as they killed him, Father, forgive them. You know what I would have prayed? I would have prayed what the psalmist prayed. Break their teeth, oh God. Amen? Smite them. <laughs> Jesus said, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. And so we love radically. i got to hurry. <laughs> Secondly, we love impartially. I love the image that Jesus used to describe how to love others here in Matthew chapter 5. He says, not only is it radical, in verse 43 and 44, he says, it's impartial. Go to verse 45, what's he say? For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so he's giving an agricultural illustration, which that culture would have totally understood. And here's what he's saying is the, the weather is impartial. The sun comes down on good people and evil people. The rain comes down on good people and evil people. And what he's saying here in the context of this passage is that's how your love should be. There's not a classification of person that you should justify a partiality in your willingness to love them. And so he says our love is not partial. Only those who belong to our political party or belong to our race or agree with our positions on sexuality and gender. He says no. He says all those people, the, the just and the unjust, all of them, you should be loving impartially. Loving's not a condoning of sin, but it's a willingness to love in spite of that sin, like Christ loved you. Now, if we're honest, as Bible teaching Christians, sometimes that's hard for us to do with the people that we think their values are messing up the world, the country, or the culture, or whatever the case is. What we say is this, well, those people aren't standing for Christian values, and so we, we need to destroy those folks and kind of snuff them out or whatever. Listen, let, let me tell you where we're guilty of hypocrisy. If our position is we need to destroy those who aren't holding to Christian values because they're destroying our country, we're hypocrites. Here's why. Jesus pushes the envelope even further in verses 46 and 47. Look what he says. For if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. And if you only greet your brothers, who are brothers? It's the people who believe like me. Right? If you only greet them or show them hospitality, show them love in action, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You know what he's saying here? Here's what he's saying. He said, hey... If you're not willing to love people who don't hold to Christian values, you're a hypocrite. You know why? Because your unwillingness to love people who aren't brothers, those aren't Christian values either, according to Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 5. That's what he says right there in the passage. 
He says, hey, if you don't love people that, that aren't like you, that aren't brothers, that don't agree with your worldview, don't pat yourself on the back for that like some kind of crusader. He says, hey, you're no different than a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, those are big derogatory terms in that culture. Gentiles were ceremonially unclean to these Jewish converts. Tax collectors were considered sellouts because most of them were Jewish by nationality, but they were actually being employed by the Romans to collect taxes, and so they looked at them as traitors. And so a little side note, write this down. It's very important. Even Jesus says it's okay to hate the IRS. Amen? In all seriousness, he, listen, I want you to embrace what he's teaching here. He says, if you only show love to those who agree with you and show love in return and who look like you and act like you and who are brothers and, you know, those kind of things, he says, you're casting your lot in with the worst sinners possible. Is what he's saying in verse 46 and 47. If you're hating those because they don't have Christian values, he's saying, hey, listen, to love people that, that hate you, that is what Christ looks like. You don't have Christian values either according to Jesus himself. And sometimes in culture, we only love those who, whose love benefits us down the road. But listen, Jesus gives no margin to that type of behavior. Listen to these verses again in the message paraphrase. He says, if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say to hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? How great is that? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way that God lives toward you. So what Jesus is saying, hey, love radically. Love the people who will not love you in return, your enemies, and love the people who cannot love you in return. Now, what do we mean by that? Several years ago, I heard a quote that said this. If you want to see what type of person someone really is, watch how they treat waiters. Because waiters have to take the abuse from people so that they don't forfeit a tip because that's what they live off of. And if you ask any waiter, what's the worst day of the week to work? Sundays. You know what they say? Those people are stingy and demanding. You know what my favorite is? Don't leave a tip, leave a track that looks like a $20 bill. That's encouraging, amen? Who are the categories of people the Bible calls us to love? See, the Bible says you should love your enemies, but when we search Scripture, the Bible also calls us to love people who not only won't love us, our enemies, but it's people who cannot love us in the sense of tangibly repaying us with their love. Now, let me mention some categories. I don't have time to... Teach all these out. You just have to trust me. These are in the scripture, okay? So number one is we love the unborn. Who can't love us in return tangibly. The Bible's clear about that. It's not a political issue. That's a biblical issue. The Bible spoke about it 2,000 years before American democracy and government was created. It's a Bible issue. We love the unborn. We love, according to Scripture and Jesus' teachings, we love the poor. They can't repay us at all. We should love the poor. We should love those who are experiencing injustice. When Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, he's actually quoting Leviticus chapter 19. And the context of Leviticus chapter 19 is an entire chapter of seeking justice on behalf of those who are 
being in, experiencing injustice. So we can fit all kinds of people in those categories. We can talk about refugees. We can talk about the elderly, those who are being exploited, those things. Now, if we're being honest this morning, our love displayed toward those categories of people is often driven by what political party we belong to and not who we belong to in Jesus Christ. And just in case someone isn't mad at me yet, According to Jesus, if, if you do that, if you only love people in your political party and their positions, their platforms, what he's saying here is, listen, if you can't love people who are your enemies and you can't love people who can't love you in return, then what he's saying in verse 48 is this. He says, you're the worst hypocrite of all. You're a Pharisee is what he's describing. Now, can we disagree on how to use civic and government resources to show practical love those people? Of course we can. But in our search for solutions, is there ever a time that, that that motive in searching for solutions can't be the motive of love? According to Jesus, never. Never. And so every Christian should be pro-life, and a biblical pro-life ethic is womb to tomb. We're for people, pre-born and born people. Why? Because that's what it looks like to love vulnerable people who cannot repay your love in return. Because if you only love the people who can love you back, what did Jesus say? You're like a tax collector, you're like a Gentile, you're a hypocrite. This is what he's saying here. And so here's the last thing. We love radically, verse 43 and 44. We love impartially, verse 45, 46, and 47. Here's the third thing I want you to see in this passage. We should make love the highest mark of spiritual maturity. Since we learn by repetition, let me say this for the 1,000th time. Religious activity and Bible knowledge are not the marks of spiritual maturity. That's the mark of a Pharisee. Now, they may be the overflow of spiritual maturity. People should love the Word of God. They should want to be around the people of God. They should engage in the worship and the activity and the mission of God. But they're not the indicator left in and of themselves. The Pharisees had those things down pat. The indicator of maturity is love. And let me let you in on a little secret this morning. If all of your love for the word of God doesn't lead you to greater love for God and people, you're doing it wrong. You've missed the point. You think the Bible's a curriculum to be mastered when the Bible says it's a mirror to be gazed into. If your study of the scripture causes you to be more critical of other people than critical of yourself, you're doing it wrong. Jesus agrees with me that this is the mark of maturity, is to love other people. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 48. In verse 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you're like, whoa, that's, that's a high bar, right? Well, this is where the Greek actually helps us. The word perfect in the Greek, it actually is the same word translated maturity or completeness. And so what he's saying is, hey, if you want to be mature, you want to move towards completion or sanctification in Jesus Christ, what's he say? Be known for your love for anybody and everybody. That's the capstone statement in verse 48 of his teaching in verses 43 down through verse 47. That's how that fits together exegetically. He said, hey, if you want to be perfect or mature in Christ, verse 48 then your ability to live out these truths, verse 43 through 47, this is what spiritual maturity looks like. And so if you're known as 
a person who fails to love others, especially your enemies and especially those who cannot repay you, you're not moving towards maturity. You're just getting more biblically literate. Knowledge without love is the definition of a Pharisee. Listen, growing more biblically literate is not the same as maturing in Christ. Matter of fact, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge not applied in love puffs up in the King James or produces pride, not love. And remember here, love is not being a doormat to sin. We saw this last week with Jesus, with the woman at the well. He says, hey, you've had a lot of husbands. The guy you're living with now, you're not married to him either, but you're pretending to be a husband and wife. You know what they call love that endures sin without accountability? Abuse. That's what that is. Love, quotation marks, that endures sin without accountability is not love. It's abuse. But grace and truth-filled love, according to Jesus, verse 48, is the mark of maturity or completion. Now, what we're all sitting here thinking, if you're like me, is like, man, I, I can't do any of that. Like, I'm really skilled at <laughs> being unkind to people who are unkind to me, amen? I'm professional. And so where's our hope for any of this? Listen, this is the only hope we have. is to throw ourselves in the mercy of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, apart from your work in me, causing me to do what my heart does not want me to do and empowering me to do what I don't have the strength to do, there's no hope of this. But here's the good news. Christ lives inside of me, causing me to want what my heart naturally doesn't want and empowering me to obey what apart from his grace I could not obey. So how do we do this? God's grace in the personal work of Christ in us. And so there's hope for us. And so the answer is, are we finding our satisfaction in Jesus? Or do we find greater satisfaction in proving others wrong or putting people in their place? Sometimes we find satisfaction in getting revenge on someone who's wronged us. But the person who's fully satisfied in Jesus Christ doesn't behave that way. Why? Because what they understand is, listen... Christ loved me when I did the same things to him, and because I'm so overwhelmed with the love of Christ he has towards me, I cannot help but be loving towards other people, even my enemies and even the people who cannot repay me. And if you can't do that and you don't do that and ask someone who loves you enough to be honest, then guess what? You've yet to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ. You know people who can't forgive, it's people who've not been overwhelmed of how much sin they've been forgiven of. And until we're satisfied with the love of Christ as opposed to being satisfied with being right and being wrong and being loud and y'all fill in the blank getting revenge. Listen, what it says is I've yet to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ to the point that I can love people who wronged me because that's what Jesus did for me. And that's what maturity looks like. But when our hearts are at peace, because we know that to be loved by Jesus is enough, then peace will overflow from our hearts in the form of a love that is so uncommon that it literally, literally changed the world. And I'm crazy enough to believe that it still can. Would you bow your heads this morning?
your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, have you experienced the saving love of Jesus Christ? Has there been a time and a place and a season in your life where you were overwhelmed with your own sinfulness? You acknowledge that that sin separated you from God. cried out to Jesus in mercy because you believe that he died on the cross as payment for your sins was buried and rose the third day and you cried out Lord Jesus be merciful on me a sinner save me from my sins if you've never been saved you've never been born again you're not sure if you have listen you're not here today by accident would you right in your seat right now pray and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins would you right now Surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. For those of you who have done that, I'm just going to ask a question that I've wrestled with myself all week. And here's the question Am I known as a person who loves people that others would say should be unlovable? Would my enemies say that even though they disagree with me completely, I was loved by them deeply? Would I be known as a person that loves people that cannot repay my love in tangible ways? Or am I just a person who loves those think like I do, who believe like I do, who vote like I do, who look like I do. If that's you this morning, then just real quick and then we're done. Number one, would you confess that sin to the Lord? Would you repent, have a desire to turn away from that? And listen to this morning, would you receive freely the forgiveness and grace of God for every person who repents and would you pray right now God help my life to be marked by love help me to love people like Jesus loved me when I would not repay him as enemy and when I could not repay him as a sinner Christ died for me one last thing then we're done would you pray a scary prayer right now would you pray right now Lord this very week put someone in my path who's hard to love Put someone in my path. Could be someone I know, someone I don't know. Put someone in my path who's hard to love and let the love of Christ shine through me because it changes the world. Father, we're grateful. The only reason we can love, the Bible says, is because you first loved us. And so may we always be overwhelmed by the love of Christ to the point that we can't help but love others well. I pray all this in Jesus' name because we can.